Hello, and welcome to 15 Minutes to Change the World, where in 15 minutes, you can learn a bit more about the world and how you can help change it. My name is Lama Al-Safi, host of this podcast. In the world's poorest communities, women and girls bear the brunt of poverty. At CARE, we believe in bringing people together to end inequality. That's why we're making the month of March for Women. As part of our March for Women podcast series, we'll be talking to four different women across industries with different areas of expertise to learn more about the challenges being faced by women around the world and what you, our listeners, can do to make a difference. In this episode of 15 Minutes to Change the World, we're speaking with Hedia Rodrigue, lawyer, writer, and advocate. In 2017, her essay, Black on Bay Street, which discussed the hurdles and isolation she faced as a Black woman interviewing and working for Bay Street law firms, went viral and sparked discussions across Canada on inclusion and diversity. Hedia continues to advocate for inclusion and diversity in the workplace and challenges systems to support a more inclusive workplace and society. Hadiya joins us remotely from Toronto. Welcome, Hadiya, and thank you so much for chatting with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So excited to speak with you. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I've been following your work for a while, so thank you so much for giving us your time. Oh, thanks. It's always <laughs> nice to hear. <laughs> well, we'd love to hear a bit more about your background and what led you to a career in law and specifically to Bay Street law firms. So I have a background in neuroscience, actually. My undergrad is in neuroscience. Essentially, I did psychology, applied to some psychology PhD programs, got in, decided I, I wasn't as passionate about it as everyone else that I met along the way. So I decided to work for a few years to sort of figure out what I wanted to do next and just wrote the LSAT on a whim. Uh, the MCAT seemed like it was going to be too much work. And so I went to the guidance counselor's office just to try the LSAT. Um, to see, you know, how I would do on it, did pretty well the first time I did it, so ended up writing that and applying to law school. And I'm the daughter of uh, two immigrants, and for those of you with immigrant parents, you know, you get the the lecture about, uh, you know, I moved here, give you better opportunities, and the expectation that you're going to become a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer. So I chose lawyer, and then uh, went to law school at U of T. It was just sort of the thing you did was applied to the street firms because it was a very easy process. You submitted your resume. I remember dressing up in a suit in August and going around handing out my resume to different firms. Now it's, it's all electronic now. Um, and then you would have these sort of speed dating interviews at the convention center. They were about 20 minutes long. And then you would make it for some firms to an in-firm interview process chose the Bay Street firm just because I wasn't really sure what kind of law I wanted to do and that had more exposure to to a variety of law rather than trying to narrow down into a small more boutique practice and then that's how I ended up uh, at Bay, on Bay Street. What inspired you to write your, your experiences and, and share them with the world in Black on Bay Street? So I left when I was a third year associate and went back to school and I was in 
the common room at Massey College, which is sort of like a intellectual gather, gathering space for uh, grad students at U of T. And I was hearing some of the second year law students talk about their experiences with the interview process. And it didn't seem like much had changed in the intervening nine or 10 years. Right. And um, they were describing very similar things. And I, and I thought it was quite ridiculous that the process had not evolved since I'd gone through it. And I was also a fellow at the Walrus at the time. And then we were talking about hiring processes. And I told them about the Bay Street hiring process. And they kind of like looked at me like I had, you know, two heads. And, <laughs> you know, they're like, you, you didn't get asked any questions about the law? And I'm like, yeah, no. Then I decided that I was going to write a story about Bay Street hiring. It wasn't supposed to be a memoir. It was supposed to be just sort of like an examination of the process with a bit of me in there. But um, I interviewed a, a range of other people other than myself. I interviewed people who were involved in the hiring process, people who had gone through the hiring process recently. Um, but then it just morphed into this memoir. So it must have been some of the challenges that you faced and maybe the challenges that you were hearing about when you were getting together with others. So is it is it challenges of women of color or women or minorities in general? And Yeah, I mean, I think I mostly just wanted to be open about what it felt like to be me at this period in time. And I think that my experience illustrates some of the major biases that you see um, women and people of color uh, experience. And so one of those would be um, the fact that women and people of color and other people, you know, people with disabilities um, are what are called prove it again groups where their competence is not assumed the way that majority men's competence is. And they always have to sort of repeatedly prove themselves or meet a higher bar um, to get the same reward. Um, another one that you see is uh, the tightrope where there's a narrow range of acceptable behavior. So for example, um, men can express anger in the workplace in a much different way than women can, and especially black women, because if we yeah. get angry, we get seen as the angry black woman. Well, how does that just, work uh, for, for a lawyer who's, who's meant to be a passionate advocate for someone or something? Um, and then this, you know, this dichotomy of being seen as aggressive if you're a woman of color and you're asserting yourself, how does that work? There is research that says women get pushback when they negotiate for themselves. They get less pushback when they negotiate for others. Um, but there's a reason why a lot of women don't, you know, negotiate their salaries or um, get seen in a certain way if they stand up for themselves, uh, really. I'm sure that every female lawyer I know could give you some story about how their behavior was seen differently because they're a woman and the same behavior in their male colleague seen as totally fine. Every woman lawyer I know has not just one, but several of those stories. Are these some of the things that, that led you to, to take another path and, and move away from Bay Street? I mean, I think part of it was I just didn't feel comfortable where I was, and it didn't feel like it was the end game for me, and that I wanted to, I just wanted to do something different and be something different. And when I looked up at the people who were, you know, 10, 20 years my senior, I didn't want their lives. I remember we had a mental health um, professional, a doctor from CAMH, I believe, come in to talk to us about mental health. And I remember him saying that one of the most important things you could do for your children is to have dinner with them. And half of the room laughed out loud. I just didn't want that life. 
What do you think is needed to build equity and equality in workplaces in Canada? Well, we need to get rid of racism generally in our society. That's going to be a real uphill battle um, because I think the workplace is just a reflection of our, our broader society. I think that in particular for workplaces, I don't think that the moral argument has been helping. I don't think the business argument has been helping, but I think that we have to see it as an issue of talent and who we see as talented and that right now certain people are the ones who are classified as talented and others aren't. And statistically, that's just impossible. So you take the avenue of law, you know, a lot of major law firms, you look at their upper echelons, they have 80%, 90% men, 20% women. And graduation rates from law school, both here and in the United States, have been 50-50 for, you know, over 20 years. For you to believe that that actually represents the most talented people coming out of law school means that you believe that men are more intelligent than women. That's the only way that you could see that ratio and think that it is accurate, which is not borne out by university graduation rates where women graduate um, actually at higher rates than men, by representation on the dean's list where women are often more highly represented than men. We don't treat people like they're equally talented or competent. You know, one of the resume studies that, that sent out resumes with black names and white names found that if you were a black person, you had to have eight years more experience on your resume to be seen as equal to a white individual in terms of your callback rate. You know, we'll, we'll know that we've made it when people of color can be just as mediocre as everybody else. Right. And you don't have to be the, the superstar just to, to make it. Uh, but right now, we, we don't see everybody as having the same potential as the talent. Did you, did you expect your essay to, to strike such a chord with Canadians and, and elicit such a big response across the country? Oh, God, no. no. <laughs> I think when I wrote it, I tweeted, I wrote a thing and then put the link and then turned my phone off. Right. Muted my phone because I was supposed to be on a social media cleanse for a piece I was writing. And then my phone just started vibrating because I was, Someone was following me on Twitter like every five seconds and my friends were texting me pictures of the cover. I didn't know that it was going to be on the cover. I went to the, to the convenience store and the, the gentleman there like I looked down and looked at me and like, he's like, you? I was like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> um, and I had no idea. I got, I think, 200 emails how much the piece resonated. It wasn't just from people of color. Like I got, I got emails from white men, you know, telling me that they didn't feel like they fit in, especially um, with class barriers on on Bay Street. Yeah, I really had no idea. I didn't think I was doing anything radical, or shocking, or I wasn't. I didn't think I was saying anything that people didn't already know. So yeah, I was just kind of blown away by the reaction. It's still like the gift that keeps on giving. I still, I still get recognized. I still get emails. I still people still talk about it. Yeah, no, it's just been it's been a remarkable response, and I'm um, very uh, grateful and glad that uh, I could bear my soul so that other people didn't have to be vulnerable to talk about these issues. All right, Hadia, how can someone who is listening at home right now or in their car take action? They're they're inspired by their words. They're listening to what you're saying. What are some tangible things that they can do to make a difference, to challenge systems, and promote a society of inclusion? Yeah, I'd say there are two main things I want people to focus on. Um, first is, you know, pushing the organization to change their policies, you know, asking them, 
you know, why don't we use anonymized resumes or you know, even volunteering to sit on some of the hiring committees or the committees that might restructure um, these kinds of programs or these kinds of processes. And, you know, re reading some of the literature out there, um, getting a sense of the barriers that people face, and then talking to your sort of your HR reps and your managers about, you know, how can we change the processes we use um, for the better? And often that means you coming up with some of the, the ideas to change your processes for the better because, you know, people are overworked and, and stressed and managers especially. And um, if you can alleviate that burden and sort of give them some ideas, it makes it a lot easier for them um, to change. And then being an ally, and especially speaking to my, my, my white friends, you know, when you see injustice, when you see racism, when you see that someone is being treated differently, don't just stand by and let it happen mm -hmm. and say something about it because your words will actually be quite powerful. So if I, if someone says something, in, you know, racist or insensitive, and I speak up, I'm seen as the angry black woman, I'm seen as being invested, the person immediately gets defensive. But if their white coworker says, hey, that's not okay, that usually carries more power because it doesn't have skin in the game to say, like they're not the one who was insulted by the racist remark, but their disapproval can carry thus a lot more weight. Calling, calling things out, not, not letting them slide, making sure that it's a culture where those things are not acceptable. Well, yeah, I have to say, um, I think you're such an inspiration. I'm, I'm so happy to have uh, the chance to, to speak with you today. And I really thank you for giving us your time and speaking with us. I'm happy to do so. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Stay tuned to our most recent episode of 15 Minutes to Change the World on Spotify and iTunes.